I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the latest and fast-changing environment in Ukraine on September 12th, we have with us our favorite and most frequent guest, Dr. Seth Jones, who is the head of the International Security Program at CSIS. He's a senior VP at CSIS and the Harold Brown Chair. Seth, welcome back. This is a fast-moving situation. Andrew, it's great to be back, and it is an extremely fast-moving situation with what Clausewitz tells us, the famed Prussian general mil- military theorist, still a lot of fog of war in place. So we'll try to break through the fog of war as much as we can. Okay, so tell me what what is happening right now? There's massive reports of Ukraine reclaiming territory and really making advances while the Russians are retreating. What's really going on? Well, Andrew, if we take a step back, the vast majority of public discussions by the Ukrainians, the Americans, the British and others over the course of July and August, and then even in early September, uh, have been that the Ukrainians were focused predominantly on the south, including cities like retaking Kherson. Part of the argument there was that these were areas that had a notable pro-Ukrainian population, anti-Russian, that they were not tenable for the Russians to hold them. And so what the Russians did is they started to move some of their ground forces that were in the Donbass down to the south in light of what they thought was a major Ukrainian offensive. Now, there have been Ukrainian attacks in the south, but what we have seen is in the early part of September, gaining sort of rapid movement on the 9th, 10th, 11th, and now the 12th of September is big Ukrainian pushes into areas just east of the city of Kharkiv and then further south. So these are pushes by Ukrainian forces into uh, towns like Izium, into towns like Kupiansk. They had been taken by Russian forces And they seem to have taken uh, Russian forces by surprise. In fact, we've seen a lot of Russians turn and run in light of the uh, Ukrainian advance. What the Ukrainians are saying, and this is really hard to know with fidelity, is that over the last few days, Ukraine has retaken territory about the size of Connecticut, just under the size of Connecticut, uh, just about 3,500 square miles yeah, Connecticut's about 4,800, so almost the size of Connecticut. And these are huge areas and very important cities like Izium that have had Russian arms, Russian ammunition, Russian depots that the Ukrainians appear now to have seized. That's pretty incredible. So what does this say about the war right now? Do, is Russia really on its heels? You know, is this a, a, an opportunity for the United States and allies to increase aid? Is this a result of the military aid? Where, where are we with that? Well, to start off, the political discussions have been very interesting in Moscow. As the Russian front line collapsed in northeastern Ukraine on Friday and then over the weekend, we began to see a lot of conversation on Russian television and then on Russian news services 
about recognizing that this fight, first of all, has gone, gone much more poorly than the Russian government has let its citizens know. And second is, uh, is that the Ukrainians have, have been a formidable enemy. What's important about these discussions that they're taking place now increasingly in public venues on Russian news services, which is going to put a lot of pressure on Vladimir Putin to do something. I mean, there have been discussions about whether the Russians, this is all happening on, on Russian television, Russian radio, uh, whether Russians should, should sue for peace now, whether, whether they should double up. Nobody that I've heard has said this, but there are those that wonder whether at what point Putin uses tactical nuclear weapons to change the battlefield situation. So this does raise a lot of questions for, for Putin and Russian leadership with such heavy losses over such a quick period of time. Is there any belief among experts and people you talk to in government that Putin might actually use tactical nukes, you know, while he's losing ground here like this? Or is that just part of Russian bluster? Andrew, that's a good question. My sense is that it's largely bluster. I do think, though, that the West, including the U.S., has to be prepared for the talk, even the threat of the use of nuclear weapons, an underground test that Vladimir Putin would order uh, to be conducted. So even if he weren't to say it outright, the implication of potentially using tactical nuclear weapons, I mean, this still is a huge embarrassment for the Russian army that has already suffered an enormous amount of fatalities, somewhere between 20 to 25,000 fatalities. And again, for, for, for people to remember over a 10-year period, the Russian army lost about 15,000 max in Afghanistan. We're talking about less than a year, 20 to 25,000, so significantly more. And, you know, with probably three to four times that amount Russian casualties. So the, the entire way that the, that the Russian government has spun this for its population, where the, that the, quote, special military option was proceeding as planned and it was going well. And this is increasingly difficult for Vladimir Putin to make that argument in the face of now a heavy loss of territory by his forces in which case we've got lots of video of Russian forces turning and running. So we're really talking about with deaths, fatalities, and casualties, people being injured, taken off the battlefield. You're looking at sixty to 80,000 Russians being taken off the battlefield. Is that right? That's, that's where U.S. estimates are right now. Yes, yeah, somewhere in that uh, area. That's, a, that's an extraordinary, extraordinarily high number. And you know, the, the number of soldiers the U.S. lost in Afghanistan over a 20-year period was about 2,000 fatalities. So these are enormous amounts higher than that. And on the Ukrainian side, is that equal or is it less? Well, there's a lot less fidelity to the numbers of Ukrainians killed and wounded. It is probably at least along those lines, likely to be high. But we just we have less fidelity on on the Ukrainian numbers. So, you know, a lot of us don't think of Russian public opinion swaying Vladimir Putin. So when we talk about, you know, news chatter in Russia, chatter amongst you know, people who live in Moscow and St. Petersburg and so forth. Does that really have an impact on Vladimir Putin? Or is that something that, you know, is just part of the background noise? 
Well, I think where it does become important is how is Vladimir Putin going to respond to this? Because this is a, at least a tactical level defeat of his forces in a key area where they had made some limited progress over the past couple of months in the areas of Kharkiv. There are now threats to both uh, Russian advances in Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. There's also some concern among the Russians that they may lose growing amounts of territory in the south in Kherson. I talked to someone earlier today in Kyiv. The mood is wildly optimistic. Feels like they've won the World Cup. Someone told me of uh, soccer right now. There's there's such jubilation. This war is not over by any means. But I think Putin is at a period where he he's going to have to decide how to respond. And is it going to be more longer range strikes against Ukrainian positions? Is it going to be threatening the use of tactical nuclear weapons, even if he doesn't use them, the threat of it, which will escalate tensions? Is it going to be a full mobilization of the military? Is it going to be permanently cutting off energy exports to Europe? Really, I think however Putin responds, there's concern that it may escalate the situation more than anything else. Like that's the real worry. What are the Ukrainians saying? Are they, you know, calling this a big victory, something they can build on? Where are they? <laughs> well, there there have been uh, predictable comments from senior Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky, that the only good side of uh, Russian soldier is the backside uh, as they run from Ukrainian forces advancing. So there's been plenty of bluster. But I do think at the at the end of the day, uh, the Ukrainians recognize that the Russian forces, especially when you start including the Navy, air forces, do still have considerable firepower in long range artillery, cruise missiles that can be shot from aircraft and then from some maritime vessels in the Black Sea. So there's still a lot of potential for grave damage in Ukraine. So what do you think is coming next? More of Russia pulling back and so, you know, as they say, regrouping. Former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates said, you know, a couple months ago that he thought the Russians were going to pull back, take a breath, regroup. Is that what this is? And then they're going to come back full throttle? Or is this really something else here altogether? Well, I think the next step we'll have to see is how far Ukrainian forces can advance and push back the Russian lines and how much territory they can control. There are some variables that we don't really know in part because they're affected by the fog of war. The key success or failure of any military or a key success or failure is logistics. So to what degree can forward deployed Ukrainian forces, to what degree do they have sufficient stockpiles of munitions, food, uh, petroleum, oil and lubricants, blankets uh, to continue to fight against uh, uh, retreating Russian forces. In addition, in areas like the South and Kherson, how successful are Ukrainian forces likely to be in pushing back Russian advances there? So I, I do think we're likely to see some movement of Russian forces retreat and retrenchment behind lines. I think what we don't know yet is how successful and how how much more territory the Ukrainians can take for now. But I just... If one looks at the Russian campaigns in Chechnya, Andrew, they were willing to fight 
14 years or so and win. So I, I, you know, I would not count the Russians out by any means right now. And today, the, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that they're absolutely going to press on. So we have to take them at their word. Yeah, and there are a lot of variables at play. Uh, what we do know is that Putin and Xi Jinping are meeting. And to what degree will the Chinese be willing to provide some assistance? We know that both the North Koreans and the Iranians have been willing to provide some military assistance to the Russians. But I'll tell you, I, I think it would be a, it'd be a terrible omen for China's major ally, uh, Russia, to be really knocked out, leaves the Chinese much more alone on the global stage without the Russians, or at least with a Russian military that's been neutered when it comes to facing off against the U.S., Europeans, and others. So, you know, this does raise questions about how the Chinese are likely to to uh, respond, whether it's providing like a Lend-Lease program for Russian assistance. And then then what that would do if we go in that direction is it essentially pits Russians backed by a number of countries against a Ukraine backed by a number of countries. There are some worrisome escalatory steps to uh, a broadening war, if that's the case. What is our leadership here saying in the United States? What do we need to do now to you know continue to support Ukraine's efforts and help them continue to retake territory and push forward on their end? Well, uh, Andrew, the administration just pushed through another package of uh, aid to Ukraine. Part of the discussion even today in Washington was also, should we, the U.S. be providing more significant types of weapons systems to the Ukrainians? The Ukrainians are asking, for example, for longer range artillery. The U.S. has provided HIMARS. I think they can generally... Most of the munitions can probably shoot about 40 miles or so, uh, probably a little bit less than that. You can put attackums on those that have maybe 190 miles uh, that where, where those attackums can be shot off the HIMARS. There's been a discussion about providing more sophisticated fighter aircraft that the U.S. is divesting. So I think based on Ukrainian successes, there will continue to be a debate about whether the U.S. should provide Ukrainians not just more aid, but also more sophisticated aid so that it, that it can better leverage its military success so far. Seth, with all of the aid packages to Ukraine that we've done so far, you know, a lot of Americans are saying, well, you know, what more can we do? Can we afford it? What is the thing that they need that we haven't given them yet? Is it longer range missiles? Is it more? We know the Russians are running out of artillery because you know, last week they it was reported that they're getting artillery from the North Koreans, of all people. What else can the United States really do here? Well, I think the, the U.S. can do a couple of things. On the military side, as I have argued elsewhere, I think there's, there's a strong rationale for uh, providing the types of weapons and systems that the Ukrainians are asking for and need for a protracted standoff war in Ukraine. That is longer range fires and aircraft that can shoot cruise missiles and other types of missiles against Russian targets. In addition, there really needs to be long-term economic uh, reconstruction support to Ukraine. It probably, especially if the war is protracted, probably will have to take place while the war is being fought. But how do you and can you start to rebuild Ukraine during during the war because it needs significant reconstruction assistance. So there are a range of things. And then I think if if the Russians do start to 
to talk about uh, diplomacy and peace negotiations, then we'll start seeing the U.S. potentially get involved in, in negotiations as well. Seth Jones, this is a fast-moving situation, and I know we're going to check in again very soon. Thanks so much for your insight today. Thank you, Andrew. Always happy to be on. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 